Good afternoon, everybody. It's Alex Sobel, co-founder of Millennium. Glad to be back with you. It's been a couple of weeks since I've had the chance to be on the Millennium Live podcast series. I'm excited today, as I, as I usually am with some of our great guests. We've got a very special guest that I'm speaking to today. He's going to be keynoting the upcoming transformational CISO program. He's going to be doing a fireside chat with our very well-respected board member, Rhea Sears, who I know a lot of you know personally and have met at our events. The gentleman we're speaking with today is John Felker. John has had a great career working inside cybersecurity organizations, both in the private and public sector. Just to give you a little bit of background about John before we get into the interview, he's going to have a lot of input about a lot of the big issues of today. John is the former assistant director for integrated operations, cybersecurity and infrastructure security agency, better known as CISA in the Department of Homeland Security. He brought focus to integrated operations across the agency that extended to regional CISA elements, intelligence, operational planning, and mission execution with emphasis on risk mitigation and response efforts. Prior to joining Homeland Security, John worked as the Director of Cyber and Intelligence Strategy for HP, the Enterprise Services Group, and in a 30-year career served as a Deputy Commander, Coast Guard Cyber Commander, Coast Guard Cryptologic Group as Executive Assistant to the Director of Coast Guard Intelligence, and commanded the Cutters Cape Upright and Red Cedar. Building upon a long career in government and the private sector, John works at the moment with senior leaders to see and understand the big cybersecurity picture, the risk and the business impact of cyber threats. He brings wide-ranging leadership, organizational and business experiences that can help people and companies prepare for the worst, understand and address the issues and ultimately succeed. John is a sought after cybersecurity and leadership expert and is a frequent speaker at the national and international cybersecurity conferences. So that's a little short snippet on John. We're going to get into a lot of areas of John's life, starting with where he's from. Even though John resides in Charlotte right now, he is from a small town of New York, which he's going to talk about. And he's going to take us through what, what his life was like as a, a young boy growing up in Rochester and walk us through his early years his family dynamic and what took him up to an undergrad at Ithaca College. So John, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Uh, it's great to be here with you guys. And uh, I look I look forward to having the discussion. So, so uh, yeah, I mean, I, I grew up in a, when I, when I was growing up in a small town outside of Rochester, Fairport was a, a town of about 5,000 people. And mind you, this is late 50s and early 60s. The nation wasn't nearly as populated as it is today. But it was a it was a great experience growing up. I was the oldest of five kids. Um, my mom and dad worked real hard to uh, put food on our table, make sure we got educated, uh, make sure we behaved ourselves. You know, you you look at the internet, you see people uh, talking about how they were raised. I can tell you, uh, my mom and dad I think raised us the right way, and we got out of line. We we. We paid the price, but the bottom line is uh, we had a great experience growing up. We didn't have a whole lot, but but we had uh, a love in our family, and we had great experiences with our neighbors, and you know all the things you would think of in a typical small town America, you know baseball and football and all those kinds of things that kids do, and so it was a really great experience for me. And and as I was going through school, a couple of the folks that I really wanted to be like were were our coaches. So when I graduated from high school and was selected to go to Ithaca, I was intent on becoming a, a football coach and a physical education teacher. And so I studied PE, played on the football team at Ithaca College, a great small small college football program, had a great experience, uh, you know, all the things you would think about in the in the mid-70s, a fraternity experience and, and all those kinds of things. And 
and really enjoyed playing football and lacrosse and gymnastics team and what have you. But at the end of the day, learned how to teach what elements were a part of teaching. And that's what coaches do too. Uh, and I think uh, looking back on it, that's one of those things that helped me in my career was the ability to teach and to coach. I've been fortunate enough over the past 35 years to be in some some leadership positions, commanding a ship and running an international training team and uh, commanding a, an intelligence organization within the Coast Guard and, and the National Security Agency. Uh, and I think there's a tremendous amount of transferable skills between teaching, coaching, and leading organizations like that. And, and I like to think that over the period of 35 plus years, I, I was able to learn some lessons and, and, and get better at it. Thanks, John. You mentioned, you mentioned your family and you talked about how you have, you have multiple siblings and were raised in what sounded like a great household and upbringing with your mother and father. What, what did your mother and father do in regards to profession when you were growing up? My dad did a bunch of different stuff. He uh, was he sold life insurance for a little bit. He um, he was a school bus driver. Uh, he eventually uh, progressed to become the director of transportation in the Fairport schools, which uh, that, that's a big deal if you think about it, because a, a central school district at that time in the in Western New York was a pretty spread out affair, and he had seventy or eighty school buses to schedule, maintain, operate, etc. Throw in the extra added attraction of Western New York winters. Um, and so he he did that and he retired from that job shortly before he passed away in the mid-80s. My mom was a teacher. She went back to teaching after my youngest sister started school. Uh, she was home with us for the majority of the time, 10 or 12 years, while we were all getting out of diapers and so forth. Uh, and then when when my youngest sister, Annie, went went back to uh, went, went to school, mom went back to teaching and she taught um, science, science. Okay. You mentioned that education was always a big part of your upbringing. How, how did your parents blend in the importance of education? Was it, was it a direct sort of discussion inside the family that education was important or was it just a desire by you and your siblings to do well in education because of how you saw the way your parents were raising you? How, how did they blend that in? Yeah, you know, I think that's a good that's a good question, Alex. I think it was a little of both, but more more of the the uh, stress by my parents on how important education was. My grandfather, my mother's father, was also a teacher. He taught uh, music, and uh, he and she, uh, along with my dad, regularly stressed the importance of applying yourself, the academic part of your education, and doing the best that you could do. My my father, in particular, wasn't. I wasn't all that keen when we when we sort of did a half-assed job on on anything, let alone schoolwork. And so uh, there was a from both my parents and my grandparents, for that matter, on both sides of family, there was a there was a stressing of of the importance of of, of education. And I think <clears throat> I think that uh, that's uh, um, apparent in the fact that all five of us have a college degree. My brother has just retired as a professor at UCLA. He was there for 30-something years wow. teaching chemistry. My uh, middle sister was a teacher. My uh, next sister was a, a nurse. My youngest sister is a, is an entrepreneur, but she she teaches and coaches. She runs an athletic program at, at one of the country clubs in, in, uh, in the Rochester area. And so I think um, all the things that we learned kind of come together and each of our own ways and, and manifest and, and how we took advantage of our education. 
it sounds like the common thread in your family was to try to help others based upon the professions your parents went into and what you were describing with your siblings. And then from there, growing up in Rochester, you then went to Ithaca. I think some people not knowing what your role, what your most recent roles were, may be surprised to know that you were a physical education major. You had said earlier, John, that you that there was a wanting in, in regards to a profession to be a physical age education teacher or a coach or both. Did you know that when you were going into Ithaca or that was that was a thought that formed when you got there when you were trying to figure out what to major in? Oh, I, I knew going in exactly what I wanted to do. As I said, I had some some influences in, in school in the fourth grade, physical education teacher right out of Ithaca College, coincidentally, named Paul Jacoby, was my teacher. He had a tremendous impact on both me and my brother as we grew up in terms of, you know, the, the importance of doing things right and how that interrelated with, with all the sports that we played, the fact that you had to work hard to, to get better. Uh, my high school football coach, uh, Pete Logan, just uh, great human beings, uh, great coaches, great teachers, and I wanted to be like that. So uh, when I went to Ithaca, <clears throat> that's that was the that was the entering argument, if you will, to uh, to learn all that I could uh, um, about how to be a good teacher and coach, and oh by the way, play some of those sports and have fun doing it. For sure. So after after Ithaca, from what I think I know, your first stint, John, post Ithaca, was actually you became an assistant football coach. Was that before or after you decided to get a master's? So in at the time in New York State, you had a, you had a what they called a temporary teaching certification. In the first five years of teaching, you had to get a master's degree. So I went uh, right from Ithaca. I taught physical education at a suburban school district in, near Rochester and coached um, football and ice hockey and baseball at a different school district with some some other coaches that I really respect. Uh, learned a lot from them too. And so as I was teaching and coaching after two and a half or three years of teaching and coaching, I went back to Ithaca as a graduate assistant to get my master's degree and to coach football. That was a great experience as well, because I got to go back and be on the uh, coaching staff of uh, the coach that I played for, uh, Jim Butterfield. Great learning experience uh, in and of itself, not just about football, but about coaching and teaching and all the things that that a lot of people don't necessarily recognize are, are part of a part of that um, part of that profession, empathy for your players. Uh, how do you how do you get this kind of a player to improve? How do you get that kind of a player to improve when are different? So it was it was a good experience then as well to uh, to grow. Uh, at that time, I decided that I wanted to be a college football coach, and so I got a part time uh, teaching uh, part time coaching position at the Coast Guard Academy which was a little bit of a different environment, obviously, than Ithaca College, uh, both from the perspective of uh, clearly it's a military school and there's there's a lot of requirements and academics are continually stressed as is military um, behavior and so forth. Uh, but the when it comes to football, their football program wasn't nearly as strong or as well known as, as Ithaca is. So there was a bit of an adjustment there uh, for me as well. And so transitioning from teaching and coaching at the high school level to coaching at the college level and then actually getting a, a position coaching um, in a college football program was kind of way, the way the evolution went, Alex. Do you think you would have taken such a prominent role in the Coast Guard if not for that coaching position? Well, I, I don't know about I don't know about what kind of a prominent role I had. I, I mean, 
the thing that is often, and my wife talks about this all the time, it's interesting. She said, I married a, a PE coach and ended up with a Coast Guard officer. <laughs> um, my, my, uh, the, the guys that I was coaching with at the Coast Guard Academy at one point said to me, hey, you know, we, we think you might be a good officer. Why don't you fly to go to OCS? And, and sort of, okay. Uh, so I did that and um, I was successful in that. Um, and so uh, obviously a, a pretty big rudder change in terms of career trajectory occurred. But all those lessons from, from growing up in a small town with a solid family experience, uh, the uh, role models I had as, as uh, teachers and coaches, the opportunities that I had to play sports and honestly play sport, play football in particular, although Division three, a pretty high Division three level, not that I was any great football player, but it was great to be a part of a program that had such a long history of, of success, especially under Coach Butterfield. And then to translate that into the things that you have to do as a junior officer to become a good leader, that kind of background helped me helped me grow a, a, as a leader in, in the Coast Guard as an officer. You spent, John, what, close to 20 years in the Coast Guard? 30 years. Oh, 30 years. Sorry, I shortchanged you by 10. You know, one of the roles that you had at the Coast Guard, I, I was trying to understand it. I had never heard of anything like this, was the role that you had as Commander Coast Guard Cryptologic Group. What does that mean? Yeah, so... You know, people talk, often talk about twists and turns uh, in their career that, that get them to where they are today. And, and that was one of them. When I was selected to for promotion to captain, when that happens in the Coast Guard, you're, you're the junior, you're the junior captain. And so the, the not necessarily desirable jobs tend to come up for assignment. Um, and in my case, the detailer uh, told me, he said, I, I want you to go and be the executive assistant for the director of intelligence. And I said, okay, I can I can do that. It was on my it was on my dream sheet. I'll I'll go do that. So it was a relatively nascent intelligence program at the time. The Coast Guard had only joined the intelligence community in 2002. This was 2005 when I when I became uh, Director Sloan's EA. So I had a, a lot of learning to do because I was not at all an intelligence professional. And I did a pretty good job for for Mr. Sloan. And as this evolution of the Coast Guard into the intelligence community was was taking place, we had 150 or so folks spread around the the National Security Agency uh, Signals Intelligence Enterprise, just like the other services, who obviously are are NSA much bigger numbers. Uh, but, but the Coast Guard was there with 150 folks spread across the enterprise. It was not a formal command. So my objective was twofold. One was to, to um, solidify our Coast Guard structure within the National Security Enterprise command structure that was similar to the other four services. And then also to figure out how best to use signals intelligence in Coast Guard afloat platforms on ships like the Navy does. So that was the cryptologic part of that. Cryptology is the is the science of making codes and breaking codes and so on and so forth. Offshoot of that, uh, twofold is signals intelligence, what NSA does very, very well on a daily basis, and uh, also information assurance, which NSA also does every single day on a, day, on a daily basis very, very well. The, um, the SIGINT part was really fun and interesting, and I think we were able to help the Coast Guard create some capability that, that really significantly enhanced uh, mission capability, and we were also able to be a part of some of the decision-making as uh, General Keith Alexander was working on the stand-up of U.S. Cyber Command. There are Coast Guard folks that are involved in that enterprise as well. 
So that whole thing sort of explains what the Coast Guard is doing in the cryptologic enterprise. Does that, does that make sense, Alex? Yeah. A lot of the stuff's over my head, but you broke it down in a in an easy, basic way to understand, which I appreciate. That's what teachers do. That's right. At least I try to anyway. <laughs> <laughs> this stuff is complex, but um, I think I think I got my head around it, a good grasp of it. As I mentioned to our listeners earlier, mm-hmm. you spent time before working at the Department of Homeland Security in the private sector. And generally, I find a lot of the more senior people that I interview that have had very distinguished posts inside the government, the, the federal level especially, a lot of the really unique and what I would classify good ones came from the private sector. And I always ask them, especially with a company the size of HP, one is, is that, do you feel that the private sector experience helped you in your public sector role? So that'd be one question I would ask you. And the second question would be, what are the big differences and or similarities between the two? Well, the answer to the first question is absolutely. You know, in my time in the the Coast Guard, you run into contractors and so on and so forth. And some are good, some aren't, but you never really understand or, or, or understood sort of how they fit into the bigger picture. Um, and and, and you, you can't possibly have their frame of reference when you're when you're dealing with them. Um, and so I think it's tremendously helpful to have both the government and private sector perspective um, when you're when you're trying to get something done. And I I uh, I will tell you that my two and a half years or so in the private sector, I, I learned a heck of a lot. I worked for a small company a little bit, so I had both a small company and a big company experience, uh, but understood where 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 the private sector is coming from when you're dealing with government contracting and 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 providing uh, services and and quote unquote stuff for the government. Uh, and I think it's really important to have both perspectives uh, because I think you make better decisions when you when you have both perspectives. I mean, you you can see where where the government is trying to go with a particular effort. Um, but on the commercial side, you can you can also understand what what the limitations are, and and so the the ability to see both sides of that uh, helps you to bring the two two together in in a in a more productive way. The the similarities there there's bureaucracy in both. Uh, it's just different. It's bureaucracy nonetheless. You know, I'll give you a good example: travel. The filing for a travel claim can be a tedious and painful process in, in different, but tedious and painful in both instances, both private and in the government. John, just from talking to you now, you're, you're a modest guy. So for our listeners, the, the post that you had after HP or HPE now um, at, as the um, director over at CISA, which I didn't realize, but you were telling me, so, so that identifies as a department inside of Homeland Security. Is that right? Yeah, so it's a it's an agency within inside of Homeland Security. So there's no, no. You go ahead. I think you're going to answer my question so, before so I ask it. There's a couple of pieces here. Firstly, when I was the director of the NKIC, NKIC was a headquarters element part of DHS. Um, that was within the um, the undersecretary of NPPD's purview, uh, National Programs and Protections Directorate. The NPPD directorate evolved after legislative wrangling into CISA. So all of those mission areas, NPPD was focused on cyber and was focused on chemical security, on uh, communications security and continuity of communications and physical security, all, all in the, you know, in the aftermath of, of 9-11 and then the subsequent different things that 
you said cyber, chemical, physical, and what was the fourth one? Cyber, chemical, physical, and communications. Communications, okay. Right. Like, so emergency communications, first responder communications, so forth. If you've heard of the, the OneNet program, which tries to bring some commonality to, to first responder communications across the nation, which is a difficult problem because of the geography our nation has impact on, on how radio signals propagate and how how effective they can be when when you're dealing with a you know a natural disaster or a fire or police or something like that right so that role in in the NKIC uh, evolved into CISA as as someone who who tries to understand that world just thinking from an outside perspective it seems like everything falls into those four categories right so you guys you guys probably had your hand your hands full well yeah I think that's that's true there are lots of things that fall into those categories. I just wanted to ask you, John, I, I was, when I was looking over my notes, I, I saw you got there at around 2015, right? Yep. You were 14 years removed from 9-11. At any point in time, there's obviously lots, lots going on in the world and lots to do to protect the homeland. I guess in the first sort of few months of you arriving there, what, what was the main thing or things that were taking up most of your time as it related to the national security? The first thing to understand that when I went to the NCIC, the National Cybersecurity and Communications Integration Center, was that they had been without a permanent director for two years. The NCIC was formed in by legislation in 2009 or 10, I guess. It brought together a couple of different elements that were already standalone capabilities within what was DHS. One of those was U.S. CERT. One of them was Industrial Control System CERT, totally different organization. And the third basic one there was National Communications Coordination uh, System that what used to be in the 60s was the continuity of communications function for the government if we were to have a nuclear strike, sort of evolved into that continuity of communications, but also evolved into, you know, after 9-11, obviously the first responder sort of structure. One of the big challenges in New York on 9-11 was the police and the fire services couldn't talk to each other. Uh, obviously, in the aftermath, that was recognized as a problem. And so part of what part of what this national communications group was charged with, aside from the continuity of comms thing, you know, the the typical the the gets WPS priority system in the in the in the telecom. But they, they were also charged with helping to sort through some of the issues that we learned about on 9-11 related to uh, differences in first responder communication. So all of those three elements, if you will, were, were separate. They were brought together as the end kick. And the first couple of folks that ran it grew it to a point where it was reasonably effective. Uh, and then they had a period of two years where they had a couple of interim directors. There's a long way of getting to, your an- to the answer. No, keep, no, keep um, going. When I was hired... The first thing I had to figure out was where where are we? Where, where do we stand in terms of our ability to function as a cohesive unit, despite the fact that we have three sort of separate mission focuses? And so I spent the first six months trying to figure out with, with our team, okay, what's good? What's not good? What do we need to fix? And where do we need to go? Um, and so in the first six months, I did a lot of listening and a lot of learning so with some, some really great people, really talented, particularly really talented technical folks, the hands-on keyboard types that really know what the heck they're doing. And so we, we came to a point in, in probably January or February of, of 2016 where we decided we we're going to make changes. And so that was the predominance of what 
I spent my time doing was listening and learning from the folks that were already there, applying what I had learned in the past 30 something years, both as a teacher and a coach, uh, in the Coast Guard as an officer and a leader and in, in the private sector. And how do we bring all this, how do I bring that to the table to help us get into the equation? I saw, John, that you you had been roughly at, at CISA, i.e. Department of Homeland Security for about five years. What was the reason that you exited from there? A couple of reasons. A couple I don't want to talk about, but <laughs> more more important reasons were, look, I, I was eligible to um, retire. I have four rambunctious grandchildren that I wanted to spend some more time with. I couldn't do that in a 24 seven, 100 mile an hour uh, environment. Um, and I did that environment for five years in a row. And maybe if I were doing that as, as a 40 year old, uh, I probably could have gone on for a little bit longer, but I'm 65 years old. And, and uh, honestly, uh, the combination of the, the opportunity to spend more time with my grandkids and the fact that I was, I was flat tired out um, led me to, to depart the pattern. With your experience and everything that you've done, both in the private and public sector, even your experience as a teacher and as a coach, I, I'm very interested to hear your opinion on certain events that have been taking place over the last few years that I can imagine have been quite daunting to an agency in general, like the Department of Homeland Security. So the one thing I wanted to ask you about a little bit is all the talk about the 2020 election, because the Department of Homeland Security got a lot of coverage especially right after the election, but also a little bit in in the run-up. I guess from a cyber perspective, how much authority or how much visibility does the, the cyber center, or I think, I think that's what it's called, at Homeland Security have on election integrity? How much control and how much visibility do they really have into that? Well, first of all, Alex, control and visibility are two separate things. If you recall, uh, from your civics lessons in school, elections are something that are run by the states. So control uh, on the part of DHS over an election, zero. That said, there is a tremendous amount of voluntary cooperation uh, that occurs when it comes to voting systems, tabulation systems, you know, those kinds of things. That the in the 2020 election, we learned a lot of lessons in 2016 mm. and in 2018. The election in 2020, I, I, I agree with Chris Krebs yep. that there was not a direct influence on the voting infrastructure by any bad actor. That, is, that, is, that, is that domestic as well as foreign, or was he just referring to foreign? Any bad actor. Now, that's, 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 a, that's a technical, from my perspective, that is a technical answer. Yeah. From, a, from an influence perspective... I think, and there are two elements of influence. First is the biggest is the influence of disinformation. Yep. And and I know that the federal government now and others are taking some steps to to better manage that uh, in the future. Think about it. The Chinese and the Russians have been very good at propaganda for years. Yep. Uh, and and they applied their trade on us. Period. From a local manipulation of vote counts and so on and so forth, I have my suspicions. I, I, uh, what elaborate on that further when you say suspicions, what, what are they and why, why, why do you think that? Well, I, I think, I mean, uh, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna go as far as, as President Trump and say that the election was stolen from him because I don't know that for a fact. 
in my mind, there are at least enough questions to, to look at this from a, a neutral point of view to determine what really occurred. I mean, if you look at what were there, five swing districts or five swing states that, that had radically different vote counts, a lot of which were absentee ballots, which could potentially be suspect. So I think we still have a ways to go in our country to be more confident of election results. You talk about five states having different counts. What, what, what do you mean by that? I mean, so, so you know, I, I don't know the veracity of this. I just, I know what I've, what I've heard. I have a friend who, a former intelligence officer who, who took a look at those swing localities. Are you talking about five different precincts in a state or five, total counts of votes between five different states? Yeah, I think there are five states in which there were, were several precincts in each state that caused what appear to be dramatic swings. My friend did a, a quick survey, and, and I think what he told me was that in the past 50 years of presidential elections, the turnout in those areas that caused the swing increased uh, a significant percentage in 2020 as opposed to the past 50 years. H how does that happen? I mean, that, that to me, I, I don't know that that occurred, but I, I think those kinds of questions, Alex, need to be looked at without a politicized view. Sure. I think we have to do better. I think we have to do better in our country to, to ensure the veracity uh, and the authenticity of, of the votes. You know, I understand what you're saying. The thing, I, the thing I try to figure out in my own head when it comes to the voting is we had an election. And there's two months in between generally, right? Two months or so between the election and inauguration. And I think in this election, there were 60 to 80 or something, something wild like that lawsuits that went before judges all around the country and even went up to the Supreme Court. And I think, again, I could be off on this, but maybe half of one, they found some reason to continue looking at information, but pretty much almost a hundred percent of every lawsuit that was filed by the, uh, people related to the existing president, the administration, outside groups failed on its merits. They weren't able to provide any evidence. Wouldn't it be safe to assume, even though there may be some things that from a data perspective look different than a prior election, that if no court in the land, including the Supreme Court, but more so all of the individual courts all across the country, majority judges pointed by the sitting president filing these complaints, wouldn't it be safe to say that we had that, that there was if there was tampering no one was able to find it or if there was some type of manipulation on any level no one was able to find it I, I, yeah i'd be a little bit careful about saying that all of these were dismissed on their merits because my understanding is that a lot of them were dismissed on technical grounds rather than the merits of the case but but that aside yeah you make a really good point i mean and i think just the simple fact that we're having this discussion tells me that there probably should have been a, a, a more close, less politicized look at this. Yeah. Um, will it change anything? Doubtful. But will it will it make us will it make us think about the 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 integrity of our elections in the future? It should. I think one of the issues that that happened was is that you had a sitting president say to the country before the election that if he lost, it was rigged. Then him coming out losing, saying it was rigged, made his side say, see, I told you. And it made the other side say, well, he was going to say this regardless. Agreed. So I think that put the situation of trying to figure this out uh, difficult to do 
because what one side said they were going to do if they lost, they did. And the other side said, well, that's what they said they were going to do. And the courts for, I, I guess, at least the way I interpreted it from the stuff that I was reading was basically saying if there's fraud, the, I, again, I don't know the technical legal terms of this. I'm not a lawyer, but nothing that was coming out was anything of of um, of con of consequence. I want to I want to ask you if if I can just because the voting infrastructure and voting in this country is such a big hot topic right now, and I know there's legislation in Congress that's trying to be pushed, referred to as HR one. I assume you're familiar with it. I am. I as being an observer, right? I, and 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 help me help me out here. Try to piece this together. I hear that from a guy like Chris Krebs, this is the safest election from a technical cyber perspective that we've ever had. I see that there are basically from what I've been shown as just a regular American observer, as a voter, there's no substantial evidence. I mean, you've got a, a an audit done by a private company in Arizona where, I mean, it seems very elementary what they're trying to do over there. And there's nothing, it just seems like kind of like a running joke. There's nothing of material coming out here. And at the same time, you have state legislators across the country putting in very intense uh, voting laws, which in general just make it hard, harder for everybody to vote. Do you think that the legislation, i.e. H.R. 1, there's any rationale for it? Or do you think that what's going on at the state level is appropriate given what we know about how the 2020 election went uh, from a consensus perspective? Well, let's uh, let's break that up a little bit. Firstly, um, I would I would ask you to uh, to consider what's been discussed about previous elections, going all the way back to pick your poison, Richard Daly in Chicago, where there was always this this undertone that, that dead people were voting. I, I think the next element of this is, as I said earlier, my view and I believe the constitutional view is. Voting is a state-run responsibility. I think HR1 is complete overreach from a constitutional perspective. Yes. I also think that it's it's there's an extreme amount of political motivation behind it. And my view, whatever they tell you about HR1 being altruistic and so forth is baloney. Uh, it's politically driven, period. The states, right rightfully should be looking at their election systems. And given the swirl uh, around whether 2020 was legitimate or not, regardless of whether it was or not, the swirl in and of itself could lead one to believe that there is a question about voting systems in, in some states. And I think legislators in those states are doing what they think is the right thing to do for their state. And I would disagree with you that they're making it particularly onerous to vote in those states. I read the the, the one most talked about recently is Georgia. Yeah. I read that law. There's nothing in there that even remotely approximates a resurgence of Jim Crow. John, sorry, take Georgia, for example, right? Because there's a piece in that law, right? Because Georgia was looked at up and down. You had the phone call with the, the Secretary of State there, and you had everybody in control of that election that was a Trump donor, basically. That, that whole state, the people that were running that state election, at least at the senior level, right, including the Secretary of State and the governor, were pro-Trump, donating to Trump. They wanted him to win. And 
They specifically have come out and said, listen, we have looked every single which way we can. I think they found maybe two faulty ballots. And like it, it, it was it was something very of non-relevance, right? The faulty couple faulty ballots. Some I don't know if this was in Georgia, but maybe in another state, they found something that um, that 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 there were Trump voters duplicating votes, all stuff that wouldn't change anywhere close to an election outcome in any of these states, regardless of who what candidate that they went for. But there's a thing in the in the Georgia law that made me a little bit ner- like not say nervous, but was like doesn't really doesn't really seem like it's it's reasonable which is the the law the part of the law that says that if the state legislator which historically is one party focused in the state of Georgia doesn't like the let's just say hypothetically outcome of an election there's no process in which they have to follow they can literally fire the secretary of state for monitoring the election or certifying the election or however it works at the state level I'm not really sure and then they can determine based upon their own investigation, if they don't like what the secretary of state and their team comes up with, they can then decide on where the state goes in regards to who they vote for. Now, am I getting that wrong? And if I'm getting that right, doesn't that seem like that's a little bit bizarre? Well, I, I, I first of all, I don't know whether you're right or not. I, I, I don't know that the law says that, but but uh, we'll take it on an assumption that, that it does. And and if it does, then 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 I think there is some question because that does seem a little bit odd. I would be careful to to characterize that part of the law. John, I, I'm, I, I love having you on because this is this is a big issue. I'm trying to get my head around this because as I mentioned to you when we were offline and as my listeners know that I, I'm a little bit of a political junkie and I'm trying to look at the voting stuff from just like trying to absorb the information. Just like with the Georgia voting law, I remember specifically, right? And, and when I say that they're gonna, it's going to make it harder for people to vote, right? I mean, in regards to they, they cut the time to request absentee ballots. They, they cut down the total number of drop boxes. They, they cut down the total number of mobile voting centers. Early voting in, in some counties, but not others, is has been has been cut down. And then obviously the topic that I mentioned to you about that the legislator has more control over the election than the state election board. I was reading now, I'm looking at something I read a while ago. The secretary of state is removed as a voting member of the state election board. The GOP legislator could suspend county election officials. Like all those things to me seem like something's not kosher there. That's going to make it difficult in general for people to vote. That screams to me that if that state legislator doesn't like the outcome, they've put things in place to potentially change it without recourse. That's what I took from that. And that's why I'm just trying to bounce it off you because am I right? Am I I not seeing something? You know, I I don't know. I I think you could, you could make, you could make either side of that argument. I'm just, I'm just trying to look at some of the, right now, as we're talking, I'm trying to look at some of the, some of the elements of the law. You talked about drop boxes. There, there are fewer drop boxes based on the law. Does that necessarily equate to Jim Crow? I don't think so. Well, maybe, again, I, I'm just saying that it looks like all over the country for the state legislators that weren't happy with the way the election turned out, they're using the rhetoric coming from the former president and his supporters to put in all these things where if you're just a regular person like me following this stuff, you're being told that by the Department of Homeland Security is the safest from a technology perspective and in foreign interference or bad actor interference than we've ever seen. Court cases all the way up in the Supreme Court won't even look at any of the stuff that's been put together because they find it so, I don't know, I don't know what the right word is, but I guess laughable or, or not realistic. And, and then on the same side, you're seeing all these tightening of laws and all these things that are being done where it doesn't seem totally necessary. I guess this leads me to the question, is there ever a point, even though elections happen at the state level via the Constitution, 
maybe it's not this, but is there ever a point where the federal government should get involved to try to protect the vote or no matter what happens, should it be always at the state level? Well, that's a good question. And I'm not a lawyer either. If the federal government wants to exert control over the elections, then perhaps a constitutional amendment is required. I mean, that, that that's one of the reasons amendments are so hard, because if they don't go with the, the political winds. They go more with the way the, the country is moving in general, which, re, which is why it's such a hard requirement to have an amendment. Yeah. The rhetoric from the former president and his supporters probably was not helpful. I would say definitely not helpful, considering what happened on January 6th. Well, the, the I, I don't want to go there. Uh, I have a strong opinion about that. Uh, I would tell you that the rhetoric from the other side is not all that helpful either. My view, unless some something drastic occurs, as I said earlier, the states have the right to set the standards for voting in their state. Well, here's here's a question for you. I mean, we we need to prove our identification with a picture ID in many other areas of daily life. Why wouldn't we require that in voting? But it's interesting you bring up bring up ID because I I I I agree with that. I think people should have ID, right? The issue I have is is right there there. If you look at I want to say maybe the last ten years or so, or there was a time period where. Uh, there was a concerted effort, obviously, for people to show ID for vote. On the on the face of that, I who doesn't agree with that? But then you have situations where you have people and you have governors, particularly in the more conservative states. I think I saw something, there was a study done in Alabama, for example. I think it was before the 2016 election, right? I might be getting some of these dates wrong. But the general consensus of the study was, to look at the data, is that about 75% of the DMVs where people go to get IDs across the state of Alabama in their minority populations were shut down. Now, that seems like you're trying to make it difficult for people to get IDs while using that same top, that same point or perspective to say, well, people people aren't going to show IDs. Why should they vote? Well, most people would agree with that. I mean, I don't understand anybody who wouldn't agree with the, the fact that you wouldn't need an ID to vote. But most people don't realize that 75% of the DMVs, if not more at this point, in minority neighborhoods across one state were shut down, making it extremely difficult to get an ID. Now, does that mean that people from those neighborhoods can't travel across the state to get an ID? No. It just means that with everything else that people have to deal with in daily life, they'll tend to lower the priority of voting in an election if it's extremely difficult for them to vote or extremely difficult for them to get an ID. I have no issue with people getting an ID, but I think that if we're not at the same time having a conversation about how difficult people are making it to get IDs, the type of verification of identity they need, and then that making it more difficult to vote in general. I think that's got to be part of the topic as well. I don't disagree. And I, you know, one of the questions I'd ask is why? Why did those DMVs close? I think, again, it's to me, it would seem obvious why they closed. Wait, 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 wait now. It would seem obvious. The obviousness of that is, it, it appears to me, is based upon a premise that you already have in mind. You don't know that they close those because they're in predominantly minority neighborhoods. There may be other reasons. So I, I'm just saying. No, I totally get that. I'm saying from that's why I like to dissect this is I'm I'm the type I'm the type of person, John. I'm always trying to be proven wrong, right? I ask a ton of questions, as you can tell by our interview, especially from people like yourselves who are successful, who have been there, have done it, and have have experience that I'm never going to have. And I'm literally always trying to prove myself wrong. But like. If voting is such an important part of our American story, and it's so much 
it's it's so much of people say, you know, it's kind of the number one responsibility of being a citizen is showing up to vote. It just seems that based upon not a lot of really hard evidence that there's a lot of suppressing of the vote going around. And I'm not saying I haven't read HR1, right? And I agree with you from the general consensus that it's nice that states, different states control, each state controls their own election system because one, I would think, and you could tell me if I'm wrong, it makes it more difficult, I guess, to rig it or, you know, like the idea of a federal election type of system, you know, there it definitely brings some angst states running their own elections. I think it makes it much harder to try to pull off stealing an election, right? So there's there's a lot of value in the in the states doing so. But for me, I see a majority of the state legislators run by one party, gerrymandering, closing of DMVs, allowing for state legislators to fire secretaries of state if they don't like outcomes. And then you see something like January 6th, which, you know, you said you had a different opinion, but like without all that rhetoric and all that gassing up over an election that most people are deeming was about as fair as it can be, barring the usual stuff that happens with some people trying to vote twice, seems like we're, we're at a point where how are we going to get to the root if there are voting irregularities when it's been taken to this point that we're there are right now? What, if anything, am I not seeing? January 6th was driven by the president alone. I think there was a combination of factors that caused that to occur. But I think you could also argue the same or similar factors, although not related to an election, caused the riots in pick your city. Portland, Seattle, Minneapolis, La Crosse, you name it. Yeah, for sure. I I totally agree with you. I felt as someone that watched that take place, some of the silence from the Democrats on that, you know, I know, I know Biden himself was pretty forceful on that when he was asked about it, but in general, a lot of people in the democratic party, the more prominent people kind of kept quiet about that. I agree with you. And that doesn't make life easier for them now when trying to talk about things that are important to them when it, when it comes to security, for example, both things can be true, right? You had the riots taking place all over the country and you had a lot of politicians that were, that were silent or weren't as forceful enough as they should have been. But also you can lay blame if you have to pick one person to take the most blame. How is it not the former president for what happened on January 6th? He may not have acted alone, but the people that had acted, first of all, to to get that event put together, to get people to show up. I think I saw something, there was a recording the night before that they just aired from Steve Bannon, the president's former senior advisor. He was saying tomorrow is going to be a nightmare. It's going to be hell. There were people tipping people off, like, just so you know, tomorrow is just not going to be a regular rally. So if there's one person that has to take the most blame, wouldn't it be the president? I, you can make that case, certainly. I, I would argue that if you look at uh, the fact that he he basically said to to go to the Capitol and peacefully protest is not. You know, the, the, the former president has a very good style of drop. I don't even know if he used the word peacefully. I don't know if that ever came out of his mouth because I listened to that speech not too long ago. And I don't know. I don't know if that word peacefully ever came out of his mouth. He said a lot of things to a lot of people that are under the impression that the election was stolen from them. And he also made it a point to tell them, you don't get your country back where there's no hard evidence that it was taken from them, A. And B, he was saying stuff like, you don't get to protect your country or save your country without strength. There's obviously things coming out a lot behind the scenes about this. And he was very forceful. And then the video, I don't know if you saw the New York Times. I couldn't even watch all of it, honestly, John, because it was so sad. All the things that were coming out from that video footage and just from the hearing that happened last week, the first hearing of the committee, when they were talking about what these people were saying when they got to the steps and the doors of the Capitol, what they were calling the cops, the racism, the stuff they were saying and the things that they were trying to do and the things that they brought. I'm just saying that people died that day. And just like people died in the riots, right? I just think we could have both conversations at the same time. 
And I think to say that Trump doesn't bear a lot of responsibility for what happened on that day, I just don't see I don't I just don't see that. I don't I, see how because he could have prevented think, that. I didn't say that he doesn't doesn't bear, bear some responsibility. Yeah. Uh, but by the same token, I could you could argue that Maxine Waters bears some responsibility for what happened in Minneapolis. Yeah. Yeah. I don't disagree with you there. I don't disagree with you there. And I think I and that's what I was saying to you before. I just think that we can walk and chew gum at the same time. Like I, I've had conversations with people about, you know, policing in general. And I always say you can feel for the police officer that has the, one of the toughest jobs in the world that, that has to work in the inner cities where crime rates are high and they have an extremely tough job, a job I would never want. But then you can also feel for the mother of a young black boy who has to worry about her son's interactions with police. Like you can do both. And I think the problem is in such a politicized environment, people tend to obviously gravitate to whatever their side, whatever makes the case for their side better. And I'm just saying that the January 6th thing really left, it, it, it's really hard to, it's really hard to watch the video footage from it, the stuff that people were saying. And, you know, when you hear from these police officers, it's just, it's just, it's just very, it's very, it's, it's, it's very heartbreaking. And a lot of times, and as you know, with former presidents, there are plenty of times where they don't like the outcomes of elections. They don't like the outcomes of the way things go or votes go. And I just think that when it comes to life, people didn't need to die that day. There's some inflated rhetoric around that too. I mean, the, there certainly five people died. Yes. Um, did they did they die as a result of that activity? No, I think one did for sure. And and I had a discussion with somebody over the past couple of days that was completely improper use of force. Are you talking about Ashley Babbitt? Yes. She was unarmed. The use of force continuum requires three elements of, of the triangle, all three elements of the triangle to be uh, present. Ability, opportunity, and jeopardy. Ability means you have a weapon that can deliver deadly force. Opportunity means that you are in a place where you can use that. And jeopardy means that you appear like you point a gun at somebody. If those three elements are there, then you are justified in using deadly force in return. And I would argue that in the case of Ashley Babbitt, none of those were present. With, with the stuff with the riots and the stuff, all that stuff, I think we probably agree more than we disagree on that type of stuff. But like, what's the difference between her being aggressive towards a member of law enforcement where they have to use their best judgment, whether they're pulling out someone over or they work inside the federal, the U.S. Capitol, and their life, they feel their life is in danger. And technically, both people are breaking the law, right? Technically, both sides are breaking the law. She's trespassing in a place she shouldn't be in. And I'm not saying by any means she should have been shot. That stuff I can't even, I don't have an opinion on because I'm not in law enforcement. And to try to unravel that situation is, is, is very difficult to do, it seems. But I'm saying, like, what's the difference between her? She's, she's trespassing. She's threatening. And if that police officer feels like their life's in jeopardy, what's the difference between that and a police officer pulling over someone who's also unarmed, but doing things they shouldn't be doing? They, they feel their life's in jeopardy. There, there is no difference. Okay. Go, go back to the point that I, I just made. Um, somebody pulling somebody over that's doing the wrong thing and then shooting them without those three elements in place is just as just as bad and in my mind, just as illegal as shooting Ashley Matthews. Yeah, Okay. And if you want to take it to its extreme, George Floyd cer certainly shouldn't have died. Yeah, yeah, of course not. Right? That that that's not proper policing. I'm not a cop. I can't tell you. Although I went to law enforcement school in the Coast Guard, yeah. there was probably the misapplication of force in the George Floyd case that was a contributing factor to his death. 
Do you, so do you think in the Ashley Babbitt thing, just we'll, 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 we'll try to put a pin in this. Do yeah. you think the cop should have some recourse for, for her death? Do you mean, should the cop be held accountable for it? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. If, if it had happened in Portland where a, a cop shot one of those protesters and killed them, that cop would be held accountable. Yeah. Why is it any different just because it was in the U.S. Capitol? Yeah, it's an interesting point. I mean, it's federal property. That's the only difference. Everything else about the Constitution and, and the use of force policy applies. Yeah, it's interesting. Well, we, we talked a lot about voting. And from a personal perspective, with the stuff that I read about in politics, and I'm just one person. It's a hobby of mine to read about this stuff. I'm just trying to peel back layers and have people prove to me why my assumptions on these issues from what I'm seeing may not be spot on. And while we were talking, when it came to the Georgia voting law, I was just reading things that read to me like they're trying to make it more difficult for people to vote. And I'm just trying to piece together based off what? You know what I mean? And if, if yeah. someone, if there was hardcore evidence of voter fraud or manipulation where it really could have changed the outcome of one of these states, I like most rational people would say, well, then, yeah, you got to try to figure that out and do what you need to do to make sure that doesn't happen again. I just have never, I haven't seen anything. Why would we wait for something like you just described to happen? when we could potentially prevent it by putting a process in place that helps prevent it before it occurs. Yeah. Well, I just don't know how some of these things like from the Georgia law limiting the drop boxes. I think there was another one I, I was looking at. It's illegal for election officials to mail out absentee ballot applications to everybody. I just don't know how some of these things help that cause. Take the absentee ballot thing for, for, for an instance. It, when I was growing up and when I first started voting, in order to get an absentee ballot, you have a legitimate reason for not showing up at, at your polling place on voting day. No. And now what that law says is that they can't mail absentee ballots to everybody in the state of Georgia, whether they're going to be absent or, or whether or not. But wasn't wasn't that done? Wasn't that done because of the pandemic? Regardless of whether why it was done, the pandemic could have been a very good reason to contemplate doing that. Certainly. No. But this willy nilly mailing of absentee ballot to to everybody in the state of Georgia, doesn't that seem to you to introduce a little bit of an opportunity for fraud? I think it could. But then I think when you have the, the Republican Secretary of State saying that they re-audited things three times and they've checked everything by hand count and they found two cases of voter fraud out of the multiple times they've gone through this, I'm like, okay, they went through it. I have no problem with audits and I have no problem with people double and triple checking results. I think they should do that no matter what. Agreed. Right. I don't care who wins. Agreed. It doesn't matter to me. But you have the secretary of state, the secretary of state's lawyer, the governor, and you have everybody high ranking official that wanted Trump to win that election more than anything in the world saying it's not there. It's not there. So you're in the middle of a pandemic. Wouldn't the fruitful thing if you were the governor of the state? Right. Doesn't it seem reasonable to make it so that people don't have to come to polling stations to vote? And then, yes, if if absentee ballots in the Georgia election for president led to faulty ballots and there was a whole thing and there was a ton of proof on it, I would say a million percent. But what I'm saying is, is that you have you have five states right now that for the last however many years have been run their elections by by absentee ballot or whatever they call it by by um, by mail in ballot. So it's not something that's totally new across the country in a pandemic that that's something to me that seemed more than reasonable and probably was appreciated by a majority of the people across the state. Well, certainly, I, I think it was appreciated, and and it probably was reasonable given the the pandemic. It, it doesn't seem to you, John, though. It it doesn't seem to you, John, that it was made easier to vote, right? In this last election, by many states, if not all states, it was just made easier. Let, let's just take it on the on the basis that everything was made easier, and it made it so that the candidate for a lot of these the, these a lot of these state 
legislators wanted to win didn't win. So they're just trying to make it not as easy. And I just I just think without proper evidence, there's something not kosher about that. Well, I don't know about not kosher, but let me ask you the question in a different way. Why would we introduce a voting system, absentee ballots to everybody, that we know opens the door for potential abuse in the future when we don't have to? Yeah, no, that's a good question. That's a good question. I'm not saying that that's one of the things of the law, just to be clear, I totally disagree with. What I'm saying is, is that the reason why you had these states do this is because of the pandemic. And it is nice and it feels very patriotic and American to go to the polling station and vote yourself. But it also was nice during the pandemic for me to drive my ballot to a police station or wherever the municipality in my town and just drop the ballot off. So the thing that scares me about the Georgia law the most, and I would ask you if you don't mind to take a look at this, I think, I think if anything, this could have a reverse effect and not in the way in which the legislators want. This will motivate people to vote. Turnout could continue to be higher because of even a little bit of the tightening of the voting laws. But the thing that spooks me the most about Georgia, and this is what I think, I don't know if they're trying this in Texas, but this would, I would think there would be somewhat of a similarity here, is that they could remove the Secretary of State as a voting member of the election board. The, 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 the state legislator has more control than the state election board. And there was another one as well that made it seem like if they don't like the results of the election, they could change it. And that, that's the things that scared me the most. I'll take a look at the at the law and and specifically related to that. Shoot me a LinkedIn message back when you can. Yeah, yeah, we'll do. And I know our listeners probably enjoyed our, our good voting voting rights debate, which I which I loved. It made made my day, John. Question for you right now, from a from a cyber perspective or from a national security perspective in general. The final thing I wanted to ask you today was, what do you think is America's most pressing domestic threat, and what is our most pressing foreign threat? I mean, as it relates to elections or just no, 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 no. In general, I think domestically, the the uh, tremendous impact and and frankly disinformation that that runs around in social media from an international or a foreign impact perspective. Um, do you do you think there's more the federal government could be doing to combat that? It's hard to say. I mean, we have to draw a line at some stage because we do have the First Amendment, and I am the first to tell you that. I don't believe for one moment the Facebook fact checkers have any credibility at all. So leaving it up to the, the platform to decide, although that's the way the, the rules are today, I, I don't know that that's the right answer. Yeah. And frankly, there's been information in our country from the beginning. It's just that we now live in a, a time where the disinformation can be transmitted and propagate much, much more rapidly than it could in 1776 or 1861, for example. Yes. Right? That's the difference. So do we figure out a way to change the federal rules or to impact it? I you know, I don't know the answer today. That's that's worthy of a whole lot more debate. I think this, sure. this discussion on the federal communications section that is ongoing is not nearly fulsome enough to make decisions on. There's 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 good on both sides of that, that argument. So I think there's a lot more to, to discuss, uh, and we we have to keep up. We you know we are not keeping up with with the spread of this information. I want I want to get your opinion on foreign. Do you agree with what the FBI director has said a few times that? The biggest domestic threat is white terrorism or white uh, white power groups. I forget how he phrased it. From a domestic perspective, yeah. Um, no, I don't. I, I I agree that they are a threat. 
Um, from a foreign perspective, you know, I think there are a number of players that that are of concern. Certainly, the Iranians and the North Koreans are of a sure. concern. The Russians. Uh, my biggest concern, frankly, is the Chinese. Yeah. Uh, without going into a lot of detail, it, there's a lot of good reasons, I think, and well-found reasons for that concern. Just the just the way that they've operated over the past 25 years, they're, they're or longer. They they play the long game. There's no doubt about it, Alex. Hundred um, percent. Yeah, I agree with you. There's a really good book out now by H.R. Uh, McMaster. Yep. Who who, by the way, although he probably does have some political leanings. They are not at all apparent or not generally apparent in his writing. He's a historian. And yep. I would I would encourage you to look at the book, particularly the aspects in it about how he dissects the Chinese and the way the Chinese have operated over the 50 years. I read Bolton's book recently, which was really good, which seemed like a very honest description of a lot of the stuff that they were doing from a foreign policy perspective. Is the threat with China, it has a lot to do with cyber, right? It has a lot to do with them trying to get into and break up or cause disruption in things like our utility grids and things like that. And, or what, what is, what is at the heart of the China threat? Well, the, the, I think you need to look at it at a more broad view than that. For years, the Chinese policy statements indicated that one of their desires was to gather up intellectual property so that they didn't have to go through the process of developing it themselves, steal it. Sure. Uh, and they have done so in large quantities. And that then allows them to spend uh, precious resources on other areas, like building islands in the South China Sea, uh, growing their their claims to to territory. It allows them to hold us certain elements of our society and government at risk. They're really good at maintaining persistent presence in networks without being found. Uh, and then they use the electric grid as an example. The electric grid is, I, my, my view is it, it's, and I'm not an expert on this by any means, but it's reasonably resilient, but it's resilient from the perspective of it is so disparate that it would be hard to crash the whole system at once. Now, could you? Absolutely. Um, and accidents like the, the blackout in 2003 on the East Coast of the U.S. point to that. But just the fact that there's the potential for the Chinese to have access to to elements of our grid uh, could cause it to not function properly it is a problem. Stop and think about the impacts of that for a moment, Alex. When we don't have electricity for a couple of hours, people get awfully cranky because oh they, yeah, you know they, they they can't do what we're used to doing now in our in our lives with with all that are electronic. Think about this: if we go four or five days without electricity, when does our ability to move water stop. Because when we start not being able to move water so that people can have drinking water, th then we have m even more of a serious problem. So, and, and you know, you can look at any number of dire projections and, of the, you know, the easy chain of events that could occur. My biggest concern is the Chinese and the way they behave and the fact that uh, up until now, and even now, we I don't, I'm not confident that, that we're holding them accountable for those behaviors. Yeah, China, China's it's complicated. That's complicated stuff. But generally, the people I've been interviewing, it's, it's kind of when we talk about foreign threats, it seems to be China seems to be at the top, top of the list. Look at some of the stuff McMaster's written recently. What, what is the, what is the name of the book? Battlegrounds, Battlefields. Okay, I'll take a look at it. If it's by him, I'll, I'll probably be able to find it on Amazon. Yeah, H.R. McMaster. And I would also offer 
go to the, the Hoover Institution webpage and you can find a number of shorts that he's written on China. I appreciate that. I always need something good to read or to listen to. One of the things that resonates throughout that book, it, it's all political persuasions with respect to how we um, how we've conducted our, our foreign policy over the past 50 or so years. Battlegrounds is the name of, of the book. The term of art that he uses to describe each successive attempt and, and uh, administration's attempt at solving diplomatic problems is uh, what he calls strategic narcissism. Um, the, the, which, as I interpret it, means um, we, we think we're better than the last guy. We're going to forget all that they did, and we're going to we, – we have the answer to the, to the problem, so we're going, we're going to solve it. That's been going on for at least 50 years, at least since the Second World War. So I would encourage you to have a look at, at his, his writing on that. I appreciate that. Well, I'm going to add it to the list. Try to try to finish off the list this year if I can. John, it was amazing having you today. I really, really enjoyed talking to you. I'm hoping I get a chance when things get a little bit more back to normal to have you at one of our events in person, meet you, get a chance to pick your brain a little bit more. Congratulations on a great career. We're excited for you to do the keynote and we hope to have you back sometime soon. Thanks, Alex. I, I appreciate the conversation and the debate and I uh, look forward to, I agree with you. Hopefully we can get together in person sometime and have this discussion face to face. Thanks for listening and be on the lookout for more episodes by Alex. In the meantime, subscribe to Millennium Live to listen and learn on life and leadership.